Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. It's hard to understand the culture of policing in America from the outside. There's an informal code among police officers, the blue wall of silence. And it's pretty much what it sounds like, an ethos that encourages cops to not talk about what happens at work, to protect their own, really. Lots of people have studied the police, who they are, what they believe in, and how they see the people they're meant to protect and serve. But it remains a system filled with problems and one that's opaque if you're not a cop. That's an issue for all kinds of reasons. The outrage against cops and the tension between them and civilians has been mounting. It hit a breaking point in 2020, as everyone knows, and it's top of mind once again following the killing of Tyree Nichols last month in Memphis. The relationship between the police and citizens is about as strained as it's ever been, at least in my lifetime. So what can we do about this? How can we fix policing in this country? I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Rosa Brooks. She's a law professor at Georgetown University who spent most of her career in the national security world. But she became a reserve cop with the Washington, D.C. Metro Police Department back in 2015. After graduating from the police academy, Brooks worked part-time as a patrol officer from 2016 to 2020 and eventually wrote a book about her experiences called Tangled Up in Blue, Policing the American City. As we continue to grapple with issues of police brutality and questions about how to reform policing in the United States, I wanted to reconnect with Brooks. I interviewed her for Vox.com back in May 2021, in the aftermath of the Derek Chauvin trial. She knows what it's like to do the work. She also has enough perspective to understand what's broken. We started out by talking about what motivated her to become a cop in the first place. You know, it was the world's weirdest sabbatical project. I had timed everything wrong, so I had just finished a different book when I got a sabbatical, and I was sort of flailing around looking for things to do. And I had heard about this reserve officers program, and, and it had just seemed so strange to me that a big city police department would let you volunteer to be a cop is nuts, you know, and send you through the police academy and give you a badge and a gun and arrest powers. And I was so struck by how strange this was. And I, and I, you know, I've worked at the sort of margins of policing issues at different points in my life. But it's such an opaque culture to people who are outside of it. It's not unlike the military, you know, unless you happen to be married to a police officer or have someone in your immediate family. You know, most of us don't know anything about police. We think we do because we see them on TV and we see them on the streets, but 
We don't really know, well, what are they taught? How are they trained? What do they say to themselves when they get up in the morning about, you know, what story are they telling themselves about what their job is and why they do it? So it just seemed like an incredible opportunity to be on the inside of this very opaque culture. I have always been fascinated by how cops conceive of themselves and their role. And I want to know what you learned about cops when you became one. You know, what does the story cops tell about themselves to themselves? Well, there are several, and they, they kind of interlock. One thing I discovered was when you ask most police officers why they became police officers, there are two stories that you hear over and over and over again. One of those stories is, I or someone very close to me was a victim of a serious crime, and I want to protect other people from having that happen to them or help them if it happens to them. So that, that's one story. And the other story you hear over and over is, I was heading in the wrong direction. I was going to end up in jail, and a police officer took me under his wing or cut me a break and gave me some advice or became a mentor, and it changed my life, and I want to do that for other people. And I say that because I think there are people who are bullies who become cops because they want to be bullies with legal authority and a gun, but the vast majority of police officers go into the occupation for pretty idealistic reasons— And that's very central to their image of themselves. They don't get up thinking, I'm one of the bad guys. They get up thinking, I'm one of the good guys. I am in this occupation to protect and help people. And and that belief is really quite deep. They then often get very cynical, however, as they go through their careers. And partly, of course, that's because people don't call 911 when they're happy, they call 911 when something is really wrong and they're angry, they're in crisis, something terrible has just happened. So police see the worst of people over and over and over again every single day. They see people at their most horrific. They see people who are drunk. They see parents beating their children. They see domestic violence. They see stabbings. They see children who are dead of overdoses. You know, it's just And they can get very, very cynical, and it's easy, I think, for them to start thinking, I don't know, are these people even worth helping? That attitude can kind of invade them. You know, I think there are a couple of other pieces. They get inculcated in them at the academy, and it stays with them throughout their careers, this sense of they're in constant danger, that they live in a society where everybody and their brother has 16 guns between them, and any encounter could turn lethal in a millisecond. And that really affects how they go through the world, that sense of people hate me and I'm in constant danger. And then add to that in the last few years, all of the media attention on police killings. This country has way too many police killings. It's insane. It's terrible. But that being said, studies suggest that the vast majority of them will never even point their weapon at someone in their entire career, much less shoot someone, much less kill someone. And so the average police officer tends to feel like, I'm very misunderstood. Our occupation's very misunderstood. Everybody thinks we're these brutal thugs. I've never killed anybody. I, you know, I don't want to kill anybody. And that sense of being embattled and misunderstood then also, you know, you get the initial idealism, the cynicism, the fear, and the sense of being misunderstood. Yeah, we're definitely going to talk about the training and the mindset and how that is woven into the culture. But you do make an important point, and that is just the brute fact that being a cop is a really hard job. We got to figure out how to do it better. But it is a really hard job. And we're in this moment. There's a lot of anti-police sentiment. Yeah. And a lot of distrust towards the police, a lot of which has been earned. Do cops feel justly villainized at this moment? Because I have to imagine if they do, that very much changes the way they see and do their jobs. They don't, by and large. I mean, obviously, I think it's important to say that cops are humans, and they're not homogeneous. I've made some generalizations. They don't apply to everybody. But that being said, I think the average cop, it's part of that feeling of being misunderstood, that the average cop would probably say, everybody is blaming all police because of a few bad apples. Most police officers are not going to go the next step and say, well, you know, maybe there's something about systemic racism and our role structurally which also is part of the problem. You know, some do, some do, absolutely. You know, I know a lot of police officers who do, but I think that next move is not one that comes naturally. I, you know, I have a lot of police officer friends who are on Facebook and just looking at their comments about the killing of Tyree Nichols in Memphis, 
there's a tremendous amount of those officers should go to jail. How could they have been hired in the first place? People like that make it hard for everyone. They make it hard for us to do our jobs. So very often that's their sense is that most of us are good. There are a few bad apples and they make it hard for everybody else. You said something to me last time we spoke and I just wanted to, I want to read it to you if that's okay and just have you clarify it. And you actually alluded to this a second ago. You said, quote, I see two profound truths that are in tension with one another. One is that policing in America perpetuates extremely unjust socioeconomic divisions, particularly along lines of race. And policing in America is stunningly violent compared to policing elsewhere. But there's another profound truth, which is that the overwhelming majority of cops will never even point their weapon at another person during their entire career, much less shoot someone. I'd love to hear more about why these truths are in tension and how that complicates our broader understanding about policing. Yeah, I mean, most of policing, and this is one of the dirty little secrets of policing, most of policing does not involve crime. Most of what most police officers do most of the time involves responding to people complain because their neighbor's party is too noisy, there are kids hanging out in the back alley and they're scared to go out and put the trash out because they're worried that these kids might have bad intentions and might attack them or something. There are people who are upset because their neighbor's, you know, leaving crack pipes in the hallway. There are domestic disputes. Parents are mad that their kids didn't come home on time. People are mad that their boyfriend didn't pay his share of the rent. And it's things like that. And because we live in a society that has largely abandoned poor communities and particularly poor communities of color because we live in a society that has radically, drastically, embarrassingly underfunded every important social service from education to mental health care to transportation to job creation. The police are often the only people available to call. So neighborhoods are over-policed partly because they're under everything else, you know, and so somebody is in the middle of a crisis Even one of these things that, as I said, doesn't involve a crime. And there is one phone number in most American jurisdictions that you can pick up and call and someone will show up at your door fairly quickly. And that is 911 and it's going to be a police officer. We don't at this moment in most places have any alternative to that. And so from the perspective of a police officer, they can feel like, I spend all day, every day, trying to help people with their ridiculous problems, which are not what I was trained to do. And the good ones help with empathy and compassion and concern and and don't feel aggrieved by it. The bad ones do feel, that's not fair. Why should I have to do this? I'm not a social worker. I'm not a medic. I'm not a whatever. But either way, police feel like, I'm not running around looking for people to shoot. That's crazy. On the contrary, I go where I'm told to go. I didn't create this system. I didn't decide, hey, let's underfund education or whatever. I didn't decide, let's have these particular rules and regulations. I go where I'm told, and where I'm told to go is where people in the community call 911 and ask me to go. And so there's that sense of feeling misunderstood. And I think the thing about structural racism and economic inequality is that it's hard to see. You know, it's really easy to villainize a person, and it's really hard to villainize 10,000 small decisions that cumulatively add up to a situation where people are hopeless and poor and have mental health issues that go unresolved for years and years and substance abuse issues. And so for police, I think they can start feeling like, what's the matter with these people? Why don't they just kind of pull their socks up and get their act together and look at all those other people out there, CNN, who think I'm this bad guy, when all I do is I spend my time cleaning up other people's messes. You know, that being said, roughly a 1,000 people a year are killed by police in the United States. Some of those killings are legally justified. You know, some of those really are self-defense or defense of others. Others of those shootings, and probably, unfortunately, the majority of them, the vast majority, are probably preventable. And some of them are straight-out homicides by police. But there are 750,000 police officers in the country. A tiny fraction of them tend to be involved in excessive force cases. And so for most police officers, that feels like that's got nothing to do with me. Why don't people like me? And it's very hard to see two things. I think, one, it's very hard to see that even if it's very rare that 
the way the occupation is structured contributes to that thousand-ish number, and that's still a very high number compared to every other country in the world, but also that it's not just the dead people. You know, it's all the people who get yelled at, who get humiliated, who get frisked when they were just minding their own business. It's all the people who have a thousand smaller interactions that are painful and remind them of inequality. I love what you said a minute ago. I just want to flag it and then we'll keep on rolling here. People are over-policed because they're under everything else. (laughs) Yeah, that's a technical term, the under everything else. That's what we call it in the legal academy. That captures a lot. This is where this actually intersects with the sort of defund the police movement. Yep. Most cops don't want to be defunded, but if you ask a cop, are you the right people to be doing ABCD that you spend 75% of your time doing, they would go, of course not. Why can't the city fund those other things so I don't have to be doing them? I do want to talk about how the profession is structured, though. Of course, there's a discussion to be had here about the culture of policing and how it's broken. And I think a helpful place to start is with the militarization of policing. And a lot of the discourse, as you know, focuses on the gear and the hardware and the tactics, and that's all worth knowing. But I know you think the more profound problem here is how police departments are organized. Can you say a bit about that? Sure, yeah. They tend to be hierarchies that are modeled on military command structures. You know, so there's a commander, there are captains, there are lieutenants and sergeants, and then the lowly patrol officers beneath them. And those commanders are themselves in a hierarchy that goes up to assistant chiefs and chiefs and so forth. So it tends to be a very rigid and hierarchical organizational structure. The training in most jurisdictions is kind of like a a bad caricature of a 1980s Marine boot camp. I mean, the military boot camps are not as boot campish as many police academies are anymore because the military figured out that this is maybe not a great way to train people if you want them to be developing critical thinking skills. Can you just give a little color there in terms of like just so people have a visual? Like when you say they're training like it's 1980s Marine boot camp, is it the weapons they're using? What are they actually doing? Well, if anybody saw the movie Full Metal Jacket or things like that, where you've got the drill surgeon, he's, you know, screaming, you maggots, get down, give me 50. You know, there's a little bit of that. And D.C. is not by any stretch, is not by any stretch the worst. In fact, it's probably one of the better ones. You know, it's a relatively progressive police department. But even so, the rules at the academy are you don't, other than to greet people by saying, you know, good morning, sir, good morning, ma'am. Recruits do not speak unless spoken to. If they do something wrong, you know, their boots aren't shined right or they, they it's a, you know, often punishment-based. It's get down and do more push-ups or you've got to run around the academy five times. So it's very heavy emphasis on hierarchy, discipline, and punishment. A lot of yelling. But are they play-acting soldiers, basically, when they're going through these academies? Yeah, to some extent. And it's certainly, I think it's fair to say that the people who become police officers who previously were in the military are often the people who are rolling their eyes most at this. I bet. And sort of saying, you know, we don't do this in the Marines anymore. This is silly. Yeah. But okay, fine, whatever. You want me to do more push-ups, I'll do more push-ups. You know, and needless to say, I, I think it's, it's just such a terrible message, right? Because the message of being in the police academy— Being told you don't speak until you're spoken to, you say sir and ma'am, you get yelled at a lot, and if you do wrong, you're punished with physical pain, push-ups or running or whatever it might be. That message is that people who have power can inflict pain on people with less power. And then if police officers go out into the community and take that message with them, and most of them don't, but too many of them do— That translates into a lot of people who they're screaming at or shoving and not really caring very much. And again, I don't think that's true of most police officers, but that's not the same as saying it's because they're just a few bad apples. You know, it's not most police officers because luckily most people manage to come through that kind of training with more of their humanity intact. But it's a kind of training that could not be better designed to produce people who will be abusive towards the general public. I think that's right. One of the questions for me is, can cops train like warriors and dress like warriors and behave like warriors without thinking like warriors, without thinking of themselves as soldiers on a battlefield fighting an enemy? Yeah. 
Well, one of the most influential short articles in the policing universe of the last 20 years or so was a think piece that was done by a woman named Sue Rar and was published initially, I think, as a white paper by Harvard's Kennedy School. And Sue Rar is the former commander of the Washington State Police Academy, trained all their state law enforcement agents, and she's a former sheriff in Kings County, Washington, so she'd spent, you know, years as an officer herself. And her paper was called Warriors versus Guardians. And she really took issue with this sort of warrior mentality and said, we need to try to reconfigure police training and police organizations to get police to think of themselves as guardians rather than warriors. And thinking of yourself as a guardian does not mean that you don't train in defensive tactics. It does not mean you don't learn how to shoot a gun. It does not mean you don't learn how to do those things, but it means that we place much, much, much more emphasis on saying to you, you know, those are the absolute last resorts, and what you should be thinking is that you're out there to be a protector, and every now and then a protector will have to use coercive means, but your primary job is to keep people safe, ensure people's well-being, and keep them safe. And I think that that launched a conversation within policing that is still going on that's a really important one. And one of the points that Sue Rar makes is that in her program that she ran in Washington State, they actually increased the amount of time spent on defensive tactics. And her argument was part of the reason that so many police officers pull out their guns is that they're scared. They don't think they can handle themselves physically And they think they need to pull out their gun to even the odds. And her take was, the more we give them the physical self-confidence to think, I'm okay, you know, I'm not going to be beaten to a pulp, you know, I can handle myself, the less likely they are to panic and pull out that gun. Yeah, I mean, you, you talk about this in your book, you know, a lot of police culture is built on this myth that the job is extremely dangerous and that... You know, there's no such thing as a routine call, right? Like you could be shot and killed at any moment, at any random traffic stop. And you you talk about how that's kind of true and misleading at the same time. It is true in a sense. It is an extremely dangerous job and cops do get shot and, and killed. But it's also misleading in the sense that that mindset, that cynicism and the kind of hardening that it produces can lead you to perceive danger and aggression preemptively where it isn't there. And that can become self-fulfilling and create lethal situations that did not have to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, policing is a dangerous job relative to accountants and law professors, but it actually doesn't even make the list of the top 10 most dangerous occupations in the U.S. That's worth just sitting with just for a second. Say that one more time, because that I think will surprise people. Okay. Policing does not even make the list of the top 10 most dangerous occupations in the United States which are things like being a roofer. It's a really bad idea to be a roofer, folks, because people fall off those roofs and they they die. It's a very dangerous occupation. Fishermen, sanitation workers, you know, they're hanging on to the backs of trucks. Incredibly dangerous jobs. Policing doesn't make the list of the jobs where you're most likely to die. That said, to be fair, the sanitation workers and roofers who die usually aren't shot or stabbed. They're, you know, they have accidents. But even when it comes to intentional harm, Taxi, limousine, you know, Uber drivers are at more than twice the risk of being homicide victims on the job than cops. Jesus. And yet you don't see a kind of army of, we need to have Kevlar vests and AR-15s for all of our Uber drivers because it's so dangerous. So it's dangerous, but not nearly as dangerous as police officers tend to imagine. How can we better prepare cops for the realities of police work? I'll ask Rosa Brooks about this after a quick break. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart. 
so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box. So is there a better way to prepare cops, to train cops so that they have a healthier, safer approach to the job? I imagine part of the story here is how we screen cops before they're even hired. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if the answer is requiring college degrees, although my lefty roots will come out here because (laughs) I'm not super comfortable with legislating blue collar workers out of any profession. Yeah. But I'm just thinking aloud and throwing it out there. So there are a few studies that do suggest that police with college degrees are less likely to be involved in excessive force situations, but it's impossible to untangle that from the fact that police with college degrees start out, they're usually a little older Mm. than the other officers. More emotionally mature. Because I think you're right that there are wonderful police officers who don't have that formal education because the skills and the judgment really don't have anything to do with formal education. They have to do with problem-solving abilities and de-escalation abilities and communication skills. I do think that when one is able to sort of shift the frame to guardian and emphasize to police officers, you know, that is your most fundamental job. Your job is to try to walk away from every situation, leaving people feeling heard, feeling respected, and feeling like they're a little better off than they were when you came into that situation, that's your job. And the more academies shift to that kind of a focus, I think the better off they are. And again, that's not inconsistent with don't be an idiot. You know, you don't need to walk alone into a dark alley where you have no idea who's in it. You know, it's the same things that we we all tell. We tell our children, we tell our friends, right? If there is a domestic violence complaint and the dispatcher says that there are weapons involved, you maybe you don't walk up the front steps. Maybe you kind of walk around the house a little bit first and you kind of put your ear to the window to see if anybody's shooting before you walk in. You know, that there are common sense things that absolutely police officers need to practice and learn how to do because you know, as you said, we live in a gun-saturated society. People shoot each other. They shoot at police officers. You know, you can't discount those threats. But at the same time, if you let them dominate, you're going to end up using force a lot of times when you don't have to. I think a lot of people may not know this or may be surprised to learn that America is actually under-policed relative to some European countries like France, say. Countries like that have more cops per capita, but American cops are more violent. They kill more people. And obviously the question is, why is that? There are lots of reasons, I'm sure, but there is a huge caveat here, and you just mentioned it, which is that there are more guns than people in America. And that's not true (laughs) in France or anywhere else that I'm aware of, right? So the whole Second Amendment thing does complicate the picture and make the U.S. an outlier case in in lots of ways. And... We also have a legal framework in this country that's extremely permissive towards police, and that's part of what makes it very difficult to hold police officers legally accountable, that the court's jurisprudence very much emphasizes we don't want to second-guess police officers. They have to make split-second decisions. We're going to evaluate the use of force from the perspective of, well, what would a reasonable police officer have done in that split-second? And so that ends up a contributing factor along with their decisions on qualified immunity, that make it very hard to hold officers accountable. And I I always tell my students, they say, well, we think police should respect people's constitutional rights. And I tell them, police officers who respect constitutional rights, as the Supreme Court has interpreted them, can still do a tremendous amount of harm. That constitutional, in the U.S. framework, is not the same as good. Could you just say very briefly what qualified immunity means? I mean, obviously, you're a law professor, so you're equipped to... (laughs) Qualified immunity is essentially, it's a doctrine created by the courts that basically says if somebody's an official, they're an employee of state, local, or federal government, and they're acting in their official capacity, that generally speaking, they should be protected from being sued civilly for what they did as part of their job. Of course, then the argument is, well, wait a minute, excessive force is not part of anybody's job. But the court has, the way they have interpreted this is they've said, yes, officers can be sued in their personal capacities and qualified immunity will not 
kick in if what the officer did violates a, quote, clearly established constitutional norm. But then they go ahead and they define clearly established as meaning that a prior court in a virtually identical case said that what they did was wrong, which in turn means that you get all these situations where a police officer, from any kind of common sense perspective, has done something egregiously clearly wrong, and the court will look at it and they'll say, well— We don't see that any previous court said that this was clearly wrong in this identical situation. So therefore, even though we think it was wrong, we don't think it was clearly established that it was unlawful. And so the officer gets immunity from civil suit. Thanks for clarifying that. And look, I don't know if there's any training that can prevent someone from panicking when that fight or flight instinct kicks in. I mean, that's deep down in our wiring. But it's still shocking when you start looking at this, how undertrained American police are. Yes. It is incredible how little training these people have. Yeah. And I suspect a lot of police interactions that go wrong are not the result of bad people out to do bad things. It's the result of poorly trained human beings responding. Poorly trained, scared people. Yeah. Responding badly, under duress, in situations for which they are totally unprepared. And that seems like a training slash screening problem. It is, to some extent at least, yes. The length of police training in many European countries is three years. It's treated like a university degree before you're out there on the streets. Um, In the U.S., most departments, D.C., it's six months of training. New York, it's roughly the same. But there are jurisdictions in the U.S. where it is six weeks, not six months. Mm. Six weeks and you're out there with your gun and your badge and your arrest powers. And even in places where it's six months, like D.C., I was actually talking to a a D.C. police officer this morning who was lamenting exactly this. He said, it's like a joke. You know, you never get refreshers. The the mandatory refresher training is brief. It's usually a bunch of PowerPoints. You requalify on your gun at the shooting range and you're good to go again. And it's not the military has an adage. You fight how you train, meaning that if you haven't trained over and over and over for scenarios, you're not going to be prepared. And I think the same is true for policing. The trouble is, it's really expensive and hard to train people really well, right? It would take several years. You have to do lots and lots of role play and scenario-based training if you want people to really internalize better responses to things. And it's not something that Americans tend to want to spend money on, especially right now, you know, that there's a lot of cynicism, oh, training is not going to do any good. So then it becomes kind of a, a vicious circle. The recruiting piece is also a vicious circle. If you go on YouTube and you Google police recruiting videos, the majority of what you're going to find out there is going to be police departments that recruit with videos that involve people jumping out of helicopters and smashing doors down and tackling fleeing suspects. Well, if that's your message to the world, you're going to recruit people who want to go tackle fleeing suspects and smash doors in. And that becomes kind of self-fulfilling if you're recruiting and saying, this is what being a police officer involves. It involves a lot of force. It involves a lot of physical activity, a military vision of policing. The people who are attracted to that probably are exactly the wrong people for policing. Whereas if you present policing as a a service profession, you know, as a, a helping profession, you attract a different kind of people. But right now we're at a moment when police departments all over the country are having a terribly difficult time recruiting anybody, just keeping their numbers up, just replacing people who leave and retire. Because right now, people think, oh boy, who would want to be a police officer? Either you don't want to do it because you think, why would I want to join this violent militaristic organization that hurts people? Or you think, well, I think I could be a good police officer, but everybody hates police officers. Why would I want to go do something where everybody's going to hate me? I live near New Orleans, and I've been there quite a bit recently, and it's I don't know how indicative this is of other cities around the country, but they've got a massive problem with simply not having enough cops. People are calling 911, and they're saying, sorry, nobody can respond. I mean, it's, it's a pretty dire situation. Yeah. Although, the one thing I would challenge there, going back to what I said about 75 or 80% of what police officers do has nothing to do with crime. Most 911 calls do not require an armed, uniformed agent of the state to show up at the door. And very often we get into these conversations, oh, crime is up, we need more police officers, or too many 911 calls are coming and we need more police officers. It's not actually particularly clear to me that we need more police officers. 
maybe we need fewer police officers trained differently doing different things and more people who are not armed police officers who are trained differently who can respond to many, not all, but to many of the kinds of calls that come in. We've just witnessed the killing of Tyree Nichols down in Memphis. Yeah. I'm not even sure where to start, to be honest. So I guess I'll just ask, how did you process what happened there? Yeah. Honestly, I didn't watch those videos. It just felt so voyeuristic to watch the videos. <sighs> like it's like a snuff film. And I do think that's become a little bit of an issue in this country, that there's a sort of ritualistic watching of these videos. And, and, and it's very difficult because on the one hand, you can't turn away from these things because we want to change them. But on the other hand, if we sort of start, you know, kind of wallowing in these depictions of pain, particularly black pain, you know, I think that that has some problems too, right? It's really hard. It feels sort of morally wrong both ways. It feels morally wrong not to watch it. It also feels morally wrong to watch it. The Tyree Nichols killing, um, I think there's another piece of this. Well, two other pieces of this that I would pull out. One is that people have lots of like, well, how, you know, these were black officers. Why would they do this thing? You know, police culture is very powerful. And police of whatever race, gender, et cetera, very often their identity as police can start feeling more powerful to them than their identity, whether it's racial or ethnic or religious or gender, whatever it might be. Yeah. And the studies on diversification of police departments. They do suggest that police departments that mirror the populations more racially, et cetera, have higher degrees of public satisfaction, but they do not suggest that they have lower levels of lethal force necessarily. And I think part of the reason for that is that people forget that it's not just about racism. There's also a pretty heavy dollop of classism in there hmm. of, hey, we middle class people, regardless of race, here are these people who we've discounted as people. They're, they're poor, they're quote unquote trash. And that dynamic is powerful in many police departments is one piece of it. The other piece though, which has nothing to do with race as such, goes back to what I said earlier about police getting cynical and they spend all day every day seeing the worst of people. They, much like many in the communities in which they operate, they are often severely traumatized. The rates of PTSD, usually undiagnosed among cops, are extraordinarily high. More cops die by suicide every year than of every other cause combined. And the research is crystal clear, not just for police, but across every occupation. Traumatized people often lash out in really terrible ways. You know, they, they beat up their wife or their kid. They drive too fast. They pick fights at bars. And I think that that's a piece of this, too. I mean, I don't know enough about these particular officers, but I do think that unacknowledged trauma can make people cruel. It can make people lash out. You know, a lot of people are learning about this elite unit, whatever the hell that means, in the Memphis PD. They called it the Scorpion Unit. Yeah. This is the unit that was involved in the Nichols killing. And there are lots of comparable units like this across the country, you know, plainclothes cops and unmarked cars using very aggressive tactics. What do you make of these types of units? Are they, are they dangerous by design? Is there any evidence that they work, even if the tactics are a little dicey? Uh, you know, depends what you mean by work, right? Reduce crime. I mean, in a very temporary way, yes, they can. If by work we mean have you arrested a lot of people and temporarily reduced like gun, usually they're targeting things like gun crime. Yeah. But in a sort of longer term way, usually what tends to happen is that the people who are participating in gun crimes just move to a different neighborhood, you know, and they, you've got these units kind of chasing people around the city. But also in the longer term, I think they... You know, again, not always. And I, I think different police departments structure units like this different ways from one another. But what they can end up doing when they go bad is they actually engender so much community hostility. Because for every guy who they stop and frisk, who's got illegal weapons, who they arrest, they're stopping 100 people who are just going about their business. And okay, good news, you got one possibly dangerous guy off the street and you've got 100 people who don't trust you anymore and who dislike you and who are now less likely to tell you anything and less likely to help you solve any crimes or prevent any crimes. And, you know, one of the many other dirty little secrets of policing is that 
police aren't very good at preventing or solving most crimes. The homicide clearance rates in many cities hover somewhere between 75% and 25%, depending on the place. Lots and lots of homicides go unsolved. Burglaries, carjackings, even more likely to go unsolved, unless the perpetrator is sort of running away as the police get on the scene or is someone known to the victim. It can be extraordinarily hard for police to do anything, and preventing crime has also just been tremendously difficult and made more so by community mistrust. If community members are scared of you and don't like you, they're not going to go to you and say, hey, I'm really worried about the kid downstairs. I saw him boasting to his friends about how many guns and carjackings they you know, You're not going to say that to somebody who you don't trust. And needless to say, even if you trust the police, if you think that the American penal system and criminal justice system writ large is going to mishandle things, and it will, our criminal justice system actually makes the people who have contact with it more likely to commit new crimes rather than less likely. Even if you like the police, you may be very wary of turning somebody over to that system, which may make things worse. After one last short break, I'll ask Rosa what she thinks about the movement to defund or even abolish the police. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. We've been sort of circling around some of the arguments about abolishing or or defunding the police. There are caricatured versions of these arguments, and there are more nuanced versions of them. And I want to try to engage with the more nuanced versions of them, you know, Mm -hmm. and I'm not sure where you stand on any of this, but I'll, I'll start by just kind of laying my cards on the table. I mean, my main objection to a lot of these sorts of arguments is that I really do think we need to professionalize the police. Yeah. That is a phrase coined by others, not me. Different police, not necessarily no police. Yeah, right? Because nothing else seems like the right direction to go. But again, very importantly, that would require more, not less funding. Yes. And for lots of reasons, people aren't really pumped about giving more money to cops who they continue to see on their screens brutalizing people. Yeah. I think, to me, the issue comes down to sort of defund I'm not an abolitionist. I think we're always going to need some people who can use coercion on behalf of the state. But I, I'm sympathetic to the underlying logic of the defund movement. But I think there's sort of a short term and there's a long term. Long term, when you think about, well, what, what would we like community safety to look like in, in 50 years, say? I would like there to be fewer police doing fewer things. I would like us to have fewer police who are reserved for the really serious violent situations where nothing else is going to work. And I would like us to have cadres of wonderful social workers and teachers and doctors and you name it, who really are flooding neighborhoods where there's a lot of need and who are responding to that stuff that right now comes to cops that doesn't involve crimes. You know, I'd like to see that. But we don't have that right now. And we're not going to get to it next year or in two years or in three years maybe we could start getting close to it in a decade, probably not for a generation. Because if we want those wonderful social workers to go, 
well, we're going to have to train people. We're going to have to recruit people. We're going to have to pay people. It's going to be a hard job. They're going to need a lot of training. They don't exist right now, by and large. People sort of blithely talk about, well, couldn't we send a social worker? You know, your average social worker is doing therapy or they're a school counselor. They're not prepared to go into a high-crime neighborhood at 2 in the morning where drunk people are fighting with each other. We just don't have them right now. And we need to be thinking now in every city in the country— well, if here's where we want to be in in 50 years, if we want to have a really different allocation of public funds and et cetera, et cetera, like what do we do today to make it more likely that we're there in 50 years? And then what do we do next year and the year after that? And it's going to be, even if the political will exists to do it, it's going to be a long, long process. And there are going to be mistakes. And one of those social workers is going to get killed. And everybody's going to start saying, oh, see what a terrible mistake you made. Yeah. You know, and I would be saying, Terrible things do happen. That doesn't mean the whole idea is a bad idea. And we, we do this all the time. We let the one bad thing sour us on something. I mean, that's exactly what police do, right? They say, well, this happened in this one instance. It must happen all the time, even when it doesn't. Right. So that's kind of where I come down. And, and this is the thing I would say in defense. I mean, the fact that cops spend so much of their time on nonviolent crimes and minor drug offenses and these sorts of things is such a problem. They should spend much more time screening, much more time doing training on de-escalation and how to communicate more effectively. That's part of the professionalization I'm talking about. But also, yeah. they should be focused more on actual violent crimes because so much of the other stuff amounts to harassment and extortion and a waste of time and resources. And I, I don't have any idea how many violent police interactions involve people with disabilities or mental health issues. Yeah. That never would have happened if those people had gotten the help they needed, which is why the call for better social services and more funding for social services are absolutely necessary. I mean, we Americans are short-term thinkers. We don't have a lot of patience. And that's, I think, one of our national characteristics that's always tripping us up. Yeah. This is not going to get better in a couple years, you know, much less a couple months as some cities kind of go, oh, we tried, that didn't work. Okay, let's on to something else. This is going to take a really long time and we're going to have to be willing to experiment. We're going to have to be willing to have failures and learn from them. And I don't know that the American public, much less the people who we elect to represent us at various levels, have the stomach for that kind of longer-term thinking. But it is absolutely the only thing that's going to get us out of this situation that we're in right now. We ran an old Vox Conversations episode earlier this week with my terrific colleague, Fabiola Sinius, and she was in dialogue with a police abolitionist whose name was Derricka Purnell, who made a lot of genuinely interesting points, but she also said something that crystallized a kind of first principle objection for me, and I'm curious what you think. You know, she'd said that the goal was ultimately to eradicate violence from society. And for me, there will always be violence in society, and we will need police to deal with it. And while I appreciate the call to imagine a different world and to re-examine our deepest assumptions about our current one, I am pretty firm on this point, as, as firm as I can be. And yet, at the same time, I'm also a white guy who has never felt threatened by the police. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what that's like. And I do think there's a moral obligation to take that seriously. Yeah, okay, but I guess I have two reactions, one of which is more agreement with her and the other of which is more disagreement. The, the more disagreement piece is that people are always saying, well, we should listen to people in the affected communities, meaning people of color in particular, but they're not homogeneous either, you know? And in fact, a majority of Black Americans, and in particular a majority of Black Americans who live in high-crime neighborhoods, they do not want fewer police officers. Right. They want different, better policing, but they don't want fewer. But as I said, there's short-term and there's long-term, and wouldn't it be nice to get to no violence, but there's a pretty long in the meantime if we ever get there. You know, maybe we can kind of get ever closer, but I agree with you. I don't think we're ever going to get there. I agree with her that I don't think that means we shouldn't try. You know, of course we should be trying. We should be trying to eradicate violence with the recognition, the awareness all the time. We probably won't succeed, but that maybe we can reduce it and reduce it and reduce it and reduce it to a level that is less crippling societally. But I think that as long as there is violence, we can't also ignore the fact that it is poor people of color who are also the victims of the vast majority of violent crimes in this country. 
And it's not good enough to sort of say to them, good news, everybody, we've decided that the real problem is police, so we're not going to have any police anymore. Well, believing that structural racism exists, you can believe that and still believe that there are people right this minute who, if there are no police, will commit more crimes and will hurt more people. And that doesn't mean, were there no structural inequalities, et cetera, would they have turned out that way? Maybe not, you know, but we're where we are right now and we can't just wish it away. I do think that the abolitionist terminology and the defund terminology have not done any favors for those movements because I I think that when you frame it differently, when you frame it as one that is more inclusive to invite police officers to actually be part of the conversation, you end up with a much better, more constructive conversation when you frame it as, hey, we all share a goal of making the society less violent and less racist, et cetera. That's our goal. We all share that goal. We all think that it doesn't really make sense for police to be mediating arguments between a teenage kid and their parent. Somebody with a gun there may make things worse rather than better. We all can agree on that. And now let's talk nitty gritty. Let's talk how do we move forward in a way that relieves police officers of tasks that they generally do not want to be doing, don't feel well-equipped for, desperately want some other city agency to step in and do instead of them. They're actually going to be, in many cases, allies. We run a program here at Georgetown. It's a fellowship program with young D.C. police officers, and we had a session last week. We had a workshop where this was exactly the issue, and the officers were expressing incredible frustration about the fact that They encounter over and over and over again situations where they want to refer people to social services, you know, to counseling, to safe places if they're victims of domestic violence, whatever it may be. And they're like, we call the Department of Behavioral Health and nobody answers the phone ever. So I actually think that you start asking police to be part of that conversation, they become some of the biggest advocates for funding all those other things. Earlier, you talked about some of the research on police training And you talked about the importance of instilling cops with a sense of self-confidence so they're not acting purely or primarily out of fear. And I think we can say that if that's the goal of police training, that it's not working right now. Many cops report that they're afraid of getting into violent interactions or they're worried about whether every person they encounter on the streets is armed especially in these high-profile instances of police violence, we constantly hear that cops are afraid. Is there something that we can do in training to make cops less afraid, to give them more confidence so that they're not acting primarily out of fear? Yeah. I mean, I think in an ideal world, we would have older cops, for one thing. Right now, there's this recruiting crisis. means that police departments can't be very picky. But, you know, the United Nations, this is a decade or more ago, raised the minimum age for U.N. peacekeeping soldiers to 25. And that's because they found that the vast majority of situations that involved abusive behavior by soldiers involved very young soldiers. And that you raise the age of 25, people start aging out of being jerks. You know, they really do. And that if you can restrict it to somewhat older soldiers, that you're going to have far fewer problems. Not none, but fewer. You know, in an ideal world, I think we would see being a police officer as something that is not your first job out of high school. You know, something that you have to get to after lived experience and lots and lots of training. Recruiting people for their problem-solving skills, for their critical thinking, for their communication skills. And every police chief in the country will tell you that that's what they want will say, this is what we need. This is actually not like the military where you're going to be out there with 50 other people and a command structure and somebody's going to tell you what to do. Our police officers are out there all by themselves. And yes, they can call their sergeant or they can call for backup, but there's probably going to be a significant period of time in any situation where it's going to be one or two officers alone having to decide how to handle a situation. And that really means that you want people who have really good judgment or really good communicators, et cetera, because they're going to have to make decisions for themselves, which in turn, of course, means that you need not only to recruit people with those skills and characteristics in mind, but have training that really reinforces those. I mean, I had a conversation with uh, a senior official in the D.C. police department 
who was saying that he felt like one of the things a lot of the new recruits at the police academy lacked, it wasn't just they didn't have de-escalation skills, they just didn't know how to talk to people. And he attributed a little bit to generational stuff of people have got their heads in their phones, they don't have the face-to-face interactions. And he was saying they're really trying to think of ways to literally force those recruits to go talk to people. Like your assignment for the next two hours is to have conversations with 10 people, to walk around the street, you know, have conversations with people. Just say hi and to just practice that. And it sounds so dumb, right? It sounds like, well, everybody knows how to talk, right? And it's sort of an undervalued skill, but a tremendous amount of policing is learning how to say, okay, wow, boy, you know, I can see you're pretty upset. I'd be upset too. Well, okay, well, you know, what's going on here, huh? Okay, well, maybe we can solve this problem. We're dealing with an impossibly complicated dynamic, and lots of people are justified in their anger, and there just isn't a way out of this. And it's partly because there is lots of anger to go around, justifiable anger to go around, that we can't move forward. Yeah. And it's just, it's kind of dispiriting. You know, one of the things I also hear a lot of my friends who are still police officers saying is this frustration that police departments, like everybody else in the universe, they value what they can measure. And you can measure things like arrests. Mm. It's very hard to measure situations that were diffused that could have gone wrong. You know, it's the dog that doesn't bark in the night, right? Right. And so they say, you go on YouTube and it's nothing but these terrible videos of police doing awful things. And, you know, they, they're sort of naive. They're often sort of like, why aren't there videos of police doing good things? Because <laughs> we do good things all the time. And they're not wrong, but yeah. nobody bothers to put on YouTube, or is it even recording in the first place, you know, the interaction that goes really well, the interaction that's pleasant, or the interaction where the police officer successfully diffuses a really tense situation and everybody goes away and it's resolved. And it's not even, forget the general public seeing those videos, right? Police express frustration that their sergeants don't see it either. And nobody is tracking or knows how to track who de-escalated the most situations. And it's not that the cops don't know, right? They absolutely know. Institutionally, it's not rewarded in part because it's hard to quantify. And that's part of the dilemma. Well, in the interest of ending this on a more constructive, optimistic note, you mentioned the program that you you help run at Georgetown for young cops in D.C. This is a program where you talk about race and violence and the role of policing and all that stuff. Do you feel like that work there is actually making a difference and giving you more hope? I do. I really do. And yeah, that's the thing that really gives me hope. We're now in our fourth cohort of fellows. So all told, I think we've maybe, we've had about 70 officers go through this. And they're great And they're super thoughtful. You know, they're super self-aware. They really want to grapple with all of these issues. And I feel like that's part of what we hope will be a generational change in policing, at least in this city, that those young officers will rise in the ranks and they will, we hope, you know, seed new ideas throughout the department. And we really emphasize a big part of the program is talking to them about, you know, what does it mean to be a change agent within an organization? You know, how do you do that when you're in a rigid hierarchical organization? And I can think of multiple examples of things that have come out of the discussions we've had in those workshops or things that have been part of projects that our fellows have done that have turned into policy for the department, whether it's new policies for police interactions with adolescents or whether it's better training on officer wellness or whether it's some changes to police academy curriculum. You know, no single one of them is remotely transformative, but going back to the kind of harm reduction concept, no question in my mind These young officers who've gone through this program have done really concrete things that have made the department a little bit better, and it doesn't solve racism, it doesn't solve poverty, it doesn't solve violence and crime, but it makes life a little better for some, you know, for at least a few people, and it probably saves a few lives, and and that's not chopped liver. Well, I think it's such great work, and I I commend you for doing it and for having a, a few skins in the game and kind of getting your hands a little dirty as it were. So, Rosa Brooks, you are always a source of wisdom and insight. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure, Sean. Thank you so much for having me.
Eric Janikas is our producer. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. And A.M. Hall is the boss. This really is a tough one. This is a very fraught issue for lots of understandable reasons. I really appreciate the fact, not just that Rosa has a unique perspective, being a law professor and having worked on the streets as a cop, she also really is trying to be constructive here. She runs a program down at Georgetown that brings in young cops and helps them think through these issues and imagine ways of doing policing differently and better. And I commend her for that. Let us know what you think. Drop us a line at thegrayarea at box.com. And if you appreciated this episode, share it with your friends on all of the socials. It really helps. New episodes drop on Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe.